0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, the coalition minister responsible for robo-debt said we'll double down when confronted with advice that the scheme was illegal. We'll get the latest from the Royal Commission. Also, the Labor government pulls the trigger on superannuation changes, but the tax pain will only be felt by a small, relatively well-to-do bunch of Australians. And what does it mean to be an adult? Demographers say a transition into that phase of life isn't happening until our late 20s to mid-30s.
2: My favorite definition of adulthood says that you become an adult when you take responsibility for somebody other than yourself.
3: People have the idea that they need to own their own home, they need to have all of their ducks in a row before they start their
1: family. First tonight, the Royal Commission into the RoboDebt scandal has heard the Minister in the Coalition Government responsible for the punitive and illegal scheme initially dismissed advice from the second highest ranking law officer that it was illegal. RoboDebt involves sending automatically generated debt notices to welfare recipients based on imprecise calculations. The former Department of Human Services Secretary, Renee Leon, gave evidence today. She relayed Stuart Robert's reaction to advice from the Solicitor-General. Minister Roberts said legal advice is just advice. And I took it by that to mean that he didn't share my view, that advice from the Solicitor-General had to be acted on, that we had to stop the program because we had advice that it was unlawful.
0: What about his tone? What can you recall of that?
1: I mean, he took it appropriately seriously. But his tone when he said that was along the lines of, well, Secretary, legal advice is just advice. Renee Leon also recalled Stuart Roberts' reaction to a suggestion that they apologise to customers and admit and correct the error. He said, quote, we absolutely will not be doing that. We will double down. Alexandria Utting is covering the Royal Commission. Alex, so Renee Leon, this senior federal bureaucrat, spoke about the culture within the public service and interactions between department secretaries and ministers. What more did she reveal? we you
4: well, Ms. Leon is the former secretary at the Department of Human Services, and she spoke about this initial context within the department of senior managers yelling at people and publicly shaming them. And she said when she came to the department in 2017, she tried to really change that culture, but it became quite apparent to her early on and in her previous life working for the Department of Employment that people who offered frank advice to ministers, she referred to it as frank and fearless advice, were either t- Terminated or moved to other departments. And she said people who uh, assisted with the government's objectives were often promoted. She talked a lot about this culture of bad news being communicated only verbally to ministers and saying that if there was a particularly damning thing that had to be conveyed to a minister, it was never written in email for fear of it being unearthed by a freedom of information search. And she actually went so far as describing having to put any sort of difficult conversation with a minister in writing as being on a collision course with the Minister. Now,
1: the, the former Secretary of the Department also had those recollections about her discussions with former Minister Stuart Robert. How surprising was that evidence?
4: It was just such damning evidence from Ms. Leon today about this conversation that she had. She recalled this period where she became aware, through some legal advice from the Australian Solicitor General, that robo debt was clearly unlawful, and she had to brief Minister Robert about that advice, and because he was responsible for her department at the time, and she'd kept notes of this conversation with Mr. Robert. But uh, she claims that he said to her when she conveyed just how serious this situation was that legal advice is just advice. And she, she put that comment in quotes in the document where she kept the notes and saying that she just found it really quite shocking because the uh, Solicitor General's advice is generally considered to be, uh, you know, advice that you would follow quite directly. And then she talked a little bit about a second conversation she had with the Minister where she she was saying they, need, they should apologise and correct the error and start backtracking on robo-debt. And she, said that the minister replied they wouldn't be doing anything about it and they would double down. So it was just incredibly surprising evidence, as you say.
1: And Alex, who's expected to give out evidence later this week?
4: Well, on Thursday, we're expecting Minister Stuart Robert to take the stand, so it can be assumed that he will react to the comments made from Ms Leon today about what occurred and, and give his side of the story. Uh, the, there are a few other uh, bureaucrats expected to give evidence as well, and, and the public hearings will run until the end of next week. So, there's, there's a lot more to get through before Commissioner Catherine Holmes is expected to hand down her report at, uh, in the middle of the year. And I think just with all this damning evidence that we've heard, I think everybody is waiting with bated breath to see what she has to say.
1: ABC reporter Alexandria Arting. Well, Australians with more than $3 million in their superannuation accounts will face tax increases on their earnings if the government wins the next election. Just last week, the Federal Treasurer was warning tax concessions in the super sector were unsustainable and would cost more than the aged pension by the middle of the century. Now, the government's promising to take the matter to the 2025 poll, even though it wants the changes written into law well before then. From Canberra, political reporter Matthew Doran.
0: In terms of political kite flying, this policy only lasted about a week. The cabinet has met this morning and had a discussion about superannuation. The Prime Minister flanked by his treasurer announcing what he describes as a modest but necessary change. 99.5% of people with
5: superannuation are unaffected by this reform. Uh, under 80,000 people will be impacted by this.
0: People with more than $3 million in their super accounts will have the tax on their earnings doubled from 15 to 30%. The average Australian super account balance currently sits around the $150,000 mark but there are some with much, much more locked away. Anthony Albanese says 17 people have balances in excess of $100 million, while one person has an account worth more than $400 million. Most Australians would agree that that's not what superannuation was for.
6: Now we don't begrudge anyone who has made a lot of money or saved a lot of money or takes advantage of the tax breaks that are legitimately available to them. We want to make that clear.
0: Treasurer Jim Chalmers came to argue the government isn't trying to kickstart some sort of class warfare. If you've got millions
6: in super, that's impressive. Obviously, there'll still be tax concessions for you. They just won't be quite as generous as they were before.
0: The change is expected to save the budget around $2 billion in its first year, but won't come into effect until the middle of 2025. As the Treasurer points out, that's after the next election.
6: This policy will go to the people. Uh, and the Prime Minister and I think that is very important.
0: But the rhetoric around wanting the approval of voters isn't totally solid, given the government wants to legislate the changes before the election, something the Prime minister is quick to dismiss.
3: Isn't that a backwards way of seeking a mandate?
7: No. Well, I tell you what I'm very confident of is that Australians don't want to see election promises broken.
0: Angus Taylor is the shadow Treasurer and argues the Prime Minister and Treasurer have walked away from a commitment not to tinker with superannuation to any degree. Having
7: now got into government, They've decided to move the goalposts. They've decided to move move the goalposts. And frankly, that's not good enough and we're not going to be part of it.
0: The merits of the proposal up for debate.
6: It uh, is something that makes a lot of sense politically. It makes sense economically,
0: but not hugely. Chris Richardson is an economist and argues more wholesale changes are needed to really make a difference to how the system works.
6: Our superannuation system is pretty broken. Uh, It doesn't achieve much for the uh, cost Uh, to taxpayers. We can and we should do better, uh, but that would take fundamental reform and nobody's
0: talking about fundamental reform. No doubt it will have its biggest impact uh, in the self-managed super fund sector. Peter Burgess is the Chief Executive of the Self-Managed Super Fund Association.
5: What we've seen today is the announcement of a soft cap, so um, members will be able to leave balances in excess of the $3 million in super uh, and they'll pay extra tax on those earnings in the accumulation phase at 30%. So uh, from that perspective, uh, you know, as I said, we don't support caps on high balances, but if we have to have one, uh, then what we've seen today is the preferred approach.
0: Within parliamentary ranks, the Greens are arguing the government's policy is another example of political window dressing. Given further income, tax cuts are still on the cards. The party's leader is Adam Bant. It's not robbing Peter to pay Paul, it's robbing Peter to pay Peter. There are clear sensitivities here. The language used by the Prime Minister and the Treasurer shows the government is acutely aware of the political attacks already coming, the accusations of broken electoral promises and of targeting hard-working Australians. But Anthony Albanese will be hoping the majority of Australians agree it's a matter of fairness and understand that their retirement nest eggs won't be hit.
1: Political reporter Matthew Doran. A nationwide ban on the use of what's known as engineered or manufactured stone may be a step closer after state and federal leaders agreed to investigate its phasing out to stop more workers getting the deadly lung disease silicosis. Unions want a ban brought in immediately, but some in the construction industry are warning an outright ban could lead to job losses and hit homeowners with major costs. Gavin Coote has more.
8: Kitchen benchtops made of engineered stone containing silica have surged in popularity over the last 20 years. It's much cheaper than marble, but it comes with serious health risks. Tony Burke is the Federal Workplace Relations Minister.
5: There's been a, a big conversation all around Australia for, that's been growing for some time about the dangers of silica in the workplace and what that means for silicosis and other lung diseases.
8: Now SafeWork Australia will begin investigating a potential ban on the product after a meeting of state and federal ministers today. It follows growing calls from unions for an immediate ban, warning an estimated 100,000 workers could contract silicosis in the next 50 years. Tony Burke says SafeWork will look at how such a ban might work and if any manufactured
5: stone benches are safe. Now people will be aware that not all engineered stone is at 97-98% silica. There are some forms that are at much lower levels of percentages and therefore present a much lower risk. Some where the risk is actually no different to natural stone. So what we've asked Safe Work Australia to do is scope out if there were to be a prohibition, where that line would be drawn. And then to also scope out how you can have a nationally consistent licensing system for whatever remains as being viewed as safe to be on the market but certainly making sure that it would have serious work health and safety issues.
8: Unions say today's decision is a good first step. Zach Smith is the incoming National Secretary of the Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy
7: Union. Certainly we would have loved and welcomed a ban immediately. Um, Understand that there are practical considerations that they need to work through to get a ban in place. Um, What is true to say though is our union won't back down on our campaign, we're going to maintain our campaign to a ban is in place.
8: Roger Singh is National Litigation Special Counsel with Shine Lawyers, who represented Anthony White, the first stonemason to die from silicosis in 2019. He's pleased to see Australia edging closer to a ban
4: on engineered stone. Look, it's been a long time coming because we cannot repeat mistakes of the past with the horrific asbestos legacy in mind. It took 70 years for asbestos to be banned and abolished, which was an appalling delay.
8: Some think caution is needed, though, when considering phasing out such a popular product. Michael Ferry is a kitchen manufacturer in northern Sydney who's been working in the industry for more than 30 years. Of the residential work that we do for private clients, I would say 90% would involve engineered stone. We do, I do a, a bit of real estate work for where they renovate units when tenants move out and they're predominantly laminate tops, but for general residential work, it's probably 90% would be engineered stone. He agrees morning needs to be done to prevent exposure to silica, but worries about what a ban could mean for the industry and consumers. There are firms that I know that, that cut the stone for us, and I would say the engineered stone makes up, look, I'm only guessing, but probably 70 or probably 80 to 90% of their work
7: would come from using engineered stones. So a straight-out ban in a short space of time would put a lot of businesses basically to the wall to switch over to natural stones,
8: which are already a lot more expensive than the engineered stones. and Obviously, if there's a huge demand, the prices would would escalate very quickly. Zach Smith from the Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy Union doesn't think the phasing out of engineered stone will lead to job losses.
7: We would expect or anticipate that those stone masonry businesses can transition to using other products.
8: Some who are living with the effects of silicosis think there's still a lack of urgency for reform.
7: 28 years old and, yeah, I'm I'm dying.
8: Father of two, Tristan Wilson, was diagnosed with silicosis only five years into his career as a stonemason and agrees the industry would be able to manage the transition away from engineered stone. That's what I don't understand, why they're, they're humming and ahhing about the effects that it'll have on the industry. The industry will survive, but all it is is, is to build it. Is If you want a stone bench top in your house, you're going to have to pay, you know, you have to pay for it. That's, that's really what it is. Instead of it being, you know, however much it is now as a cheap option... It'll be more of a luxury item, which realistically probably is how it should be anyway. State and federal leaders have agreed to meet again in six months or earlier if the Safe Work Australia report is finished before then.
1: Gavin Coote reporting. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, modern changes to the James Bond novels leave some fans shaken and stirred. The problem with
0: revising culture is it allows us to forget how offensive it is and how brutal it is. James Bond is a kind of arbiter of the British Empire. The British Empire was racist.
1: 12 months after floods ravaged southeast Queensland and the New South Wales Northern Rivers, many residents are still juggling their trauma and the challenges of recovering. More than 20 lives were lost, and tens of thousands of homes and businesses damaged or destroyed when floodwaters caught entire communities off guard. After months in temporary accommodation, some people are back in their homes. But questions are mounting about what authorities are doing to protect people from another disaster. Stephanie Smale reports.
9: Nick Morgan's daughter was five weeks old when the floods hit and the water started coming up around their bed. They were ferried to safety, then spent the next six months in temporary accommodation while he repaired their home from the stumps up.
6: I, I did hit a wall at a point where I was just like going to the house was like I hated it. I was just like, oh, you know, like I really don't like being here. I don't like seeing all these things to do.
9: He's used a lump sum payment from his insurer, government grants and vouchers to cover the costs, including retrofitting the kitchen, which he hopes the government will help pay for.
6: We looked around and we found this PVC foam board that they use on outdoor kitchens, on yachts, on luxury yachts. It'd be easier to clean up.
9: Is this your first home? Is that why you decided to stay?
6: It is our first home and it just felt like to move after that more than anything, it would have kind of amplified the effect of the flood. Um, so it felt like staying was a, was a more positive thing to do.
9: The catastrophic flooding swallowed the northern rivers from communities like Woodburn and Empire Vale to Ballina and Byron on the coast. And for many, the slow, often painful recovery is dragging on. Nick Morgan considers himself lucky acknowledging that many others in his community are still battling to even find somewhere to stay. He says a lot of his friends seem okay emotionally, but admits the anniversary is hard.
6: For me as well, I've noticed the last few days with a lot more talk about it, I've noticed it's definitely all the emotions are sitting up really high again, and no one can see that in me when I see them. So I guess when I see others, you know, I imagine that the same thing could be happening with them.
9: And he's not convinced authorities are facing the tough questions about how to protect communities like his in the long term.
6: If we're just fixing up our houses, like, that's all the average person can do. That's not going to be enough, you know. Like, we need to act as a group and and think about the bigger picture stuff.
9: Vicky Finlay's home is on the floodplain in Lismore.
10: On the night of the flood, we were trapped from very early in the evening, hours and hours and hours before an evacuation was called.
9: She says the first few months were particularly tough.
10: I wasn't mentally very well at all and felt extremely depressed, having nightmares at night, and um, it re-triggered old trauma for, for me. So I went and saw my GP in May last year and got a referral for to a psychologist, and it really helped me to get through that period of time.
9: Vicky wasn't insured, but used a state government grant to repair her home. She says the disaster has taken a physical toll too.
10: You know, now I look around the house and it looks so clean and tidy, but it was months and months and months of relentlessly scrubbing mud out of the house. I think a lot of people, like myself, have sustained injuries over that time. I'm an older person, so... My body didn't hold up terribly well to all that scrubby.
9: Since the flood, Vicky has bought life jackets for her family and their dog, but she's angry local authorities aren't talking about how others can be more prepared. And even though their home is repaired, she's in limbo with hundreds of others, waiting to hear from the Northern Rivers Reconstruction Corporation about whether she'll be offered a buyback.
10: And even if we do hear from them, I mean, where are we going to go? We don't, No, there's no land currently available.
9: Residents in Queensland are battling with the buyback scheme too. The water went up to eye level on the second floor of Bianca McCauley's home in the Brisbane suburb of Oxley, and they've used their own money and borrowed from friends and family to fix it. She was approved for a grant to lift her house to a safe height and spent thousands getting the documents together. But then the state government offered them a buyback.
4: I was quite angry and confused, and I kind of just was over making those huge decisions. Yeah, to get that letter again was kind of just throwing us back into this limbo of, uh, you know, what do we do?
9: Dozens of residents across southeast Queensland have received offers for their homes, but with 1,400 applications, there's concern hundreds will miss out.
1: Stephanie Smale reporting. Well, what does it mean to be an adult? And are kids these days taking longer to get there? A report by Demographers says Australians aren't entering adulthood until their late 20s to mid-30s, and the hurdles to home ownership are slowing that transition. Rachel Hayter reports.
11: Mid-last century, life could be cut into three distinct stages. Childhood, adulthood and old age. Now, it's not so clear-cut.
2: My favourite definition of adulthood says that you become an adult when you take responsibility for somebody other than yourself.
11: Simon Kustenmaha is the co-founder of the Demographics Group.
2: These days, young people aren't really forced to take responsibility for other people than themselves because they only have kids in their mid-late 30s, really, and they don't join the military, for example, at scale, where they have to literally take responsibility for the lives of their fellow soldiers. So you can afford to be a bit more self-focused, a bit more adolescent in your outlook.
11: A new demographics group report commissioned by wealth manager AMP has found there are no longer three life stages, but six... Childhood lasts until you're 13, when you enter adolescence. That period goes for a lot longer than it once did. People today don't leave adolescence until they're about 29, up until their mid-30s. Then comes adulthood until you're around 55. After that is the lifestyle period, lasting until you're 65. Retirement comes next and extends until 76, followed by old age. The biggest change over the decades, that prolonged period of adolescence. The research shows that's because now more jobs require long university degrees. Simon Kustenmaha says the hurdles to home ownership also don't help.
2: Young people, they can't really enter the housing market until they have saved for many, many years for a down payment. The main trigger... That makes you really, really want to own a home, usually marriage and the idea, the prospect of having kids.
11: Devorah Lieberman is Medical Director of City Fertility New South Wales. She's having these conversations with her patients.
3: People now still have the idea that they need to own their own home. They need to have all of their ducks in a row before they start their family. When my parents, my husband's parents were having children, they got married quite young, They They had pretty much nothing at that time. But nowadays, I think people do want to have more established careers, more established lifestyles.
11: According to data from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, the average age of first-time mothers has been rising over time, from 28.3 in 2010 to 29.6 in 2020. I
3: increasingly see a lot of ambivalence. Among women, particularly women who are coming for egg freezing, I'd say about one in five of uh, my patients who are considering egg freezing are actually in relationships, but they're not sure or they're not ready if they want to have children. We could certainly blame this on, on Sydney housing prices. We blame everything on Sydney housing prices at the moment. But I think also the trend for for children to stay at home longer, this sort of delayed adolescence when cost of living is so high kids are staying home with their parents so they don't actually have to grow up
11: rana ibrahimi is from multicultural youth advocacy network australia she speaks with young people from migrant
4: and refugee backgrounds most of the time we find out that young people under 30 have different needs and we consider them as used.
11: She says policymakers should be considering changing
4: demographics in their decision-making. It creates a level of gap between the services and young people and also it delays their access to the proper service and the proper requirement that they need to get to the adults something simple like housing or finding a job.
1: Rana Ebrahimi from Multicultural Youth Advocacy Network Australia. That report from Rachel Hayter and Matt Bamford. Well, last week we learned Roald Dahl's beloved children's books were being republished, with some references to characters' weight, mental health, gender and race removed. Now the James Bond novels of Ian Fleming are to be republished, with some racist references removed. It's been 70 years since The Suave Spy 007 Walked up to a casino bar and ordered a martini. So, should he be moving with the Times? Angus Randall prepared this report.
7: When you hear that music, what comes to mind? A suave super spy? a misogynist dinosaur, or an opportunity to sell Aston Martins. James Bond books and films have been facing accusations of racism for decades.
5: Keep your curry for a few weeks, 1st you? First, you become a Japanese.
7: But something is about to change. Ian Fleming's James Bond novels are being re-released this year to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the first book, Casino Royale, and the most offensive language is being removed along with a disclaimer explaining why changes have been made to the original text. Josh Gay is a contributor to the James Bond Australia website and a lifelong Bond fan.
12: Yeah, so it, it's a bit of a weird situation. I, I can understand why Ian Fleming publications are doing it, and there is historical precedence for it. I mean, when they published uh, Live and Let Die back in 1955 in the United States, they actually made edits to certain, uh, I would say slurs, <laughs> for a better word, to towards the African-American community. Um, so it's not like it hasn't been done before, but I think off the back of the uh, the changes to the role dial text, now it's all sort of coming out that they're making some wholesale changes to the Bond texts to uh, bring them out to modern sensibilities.
7: Bond also has issues with sexism, violence towards women, smoking. Is there much left if you start making cuts to meet modern standards?
12: I mean, like all historical literature from the early to mid 20th century, it is incredibly difficult to make changes to meet modern sensibilities. I mean, James Bond is known as a misogynist character, um, and a lot of the stories that have overly uh, sexualized connotations are quite imperative to the stories and if you start hacking away with them with the garden shears you're left with a bit of a a shell of what's left
7: james bond has been reckoning with his past for years perhaps best put by his boss in goldeneye nearly 30 years ago
10: because i think you're a sexist misogynist dinosaur a relic
7: of the cold war Dr Ari Matties is from Notre Dame, Australia. He says it's important to remember James Bond as written is a product of his time.
0: The problem with revising culture is it allows us to forget how offensive it is and how brutal it is. James Bond is a kind of arbiter of the British Empire. The British Empire was racist. It used racism to ideologically justify expansion. For hundreds of years, and so I think I think we probably should remember that when we when we think about or read James Bond.
7: Dr. Darren Paul Fisher is the head of film, screen, and creative media at Appropriately Bond University. He says there are ways publishers can reckon with artists from a different time.
6: I suppose there's two approaches. One of which is what I think Disney and Disney Plus have done, which is in the main, although they have done some editing occasionally, they'll put a disclaimer on the front saying this film uses outdated cultural references and flags it relatively large before you can access it.
7: The edited editions of the James Bond novels will be released later this year.
1: Angus Randall reporting and just to let you know we've had to hold over a story we were planning on bringing you today on the challenges to overcome before Australia's ferry fleets can go electric. We'll bring you that report later this week. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Do head to the PM webpage for all our interviews and reports. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night.
11: Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. The war in Ukraine is seen as Vladimir Putin's war, so should we really punish Russians by stopping their athletes from competing internationally? Australia's the latest nation that wants them banned from next year's Olympics in Paris. Today, host of the Ticket podcast, Tracy Holmes, on the dilemma when sport and politics collide. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app.
7: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.